Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Being Human is Weird. We are so happy that you're joining us once again. Today, we are talking about financial wellness, and we have a very special guest who has over 30 years with the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS for us laymen. I was like, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) Over 28 years operating his current business, and he happens to be my father. And he can speak more to his experience here, but welcome, John Downing. Well, thank you, Abby and Carrie, to inviting me to your podcast. Uh, I hope I can add some value to what your listeners will hear today from from this podcast. I do uh, have some experience. I graduated with a background in accounting, finance, and insurance. And like Carrie said, I went to work for the Internal Revenue Service for 30-plus years auditing tax returns. And then uh, I've opened a business that I've operated for 28 years. So I'm not a financial planner. Uh, I'm not a certified public accountant, but much of what I'm talking about, uh, I've lived. So uh, hopefully I have some advice that will be invaluable to some people. And you mentioned 28 years at the current business, but how many businesses have you opened total during your lifetime? This is probably the largest enterprise I've operated, but I certainly had some smaller enterprises that I'd been in the landscaping business for a short period of time, a few years, uh, and actually ran a small farming operation for a few years and also handled uh, rental properties as well. So. Wow. But this is certainly the largest enterprise that I've operated with. We have about 15 employees, and we've done fairly well for the last 20-some years. And I know we're going to dig into the nitty-gritty here of how we can be a little bit more financially well, but what is your definition of financial wellness, or why is it important? I would say financial wellness is being able to live within uh, your means, your ability to pay your your bills without being stressed out about it, to put aside some money for the your future as well, living within your means so that you feel comfortable, so that you, I mean, you have a life that uh, you can still enjoy. The last thing any of us want to do is be so stressed out, worrying about how we're going to pay for every next item can't be good for us mentally or physically. So um, I think that's the definition, just being able to live within our means. Before we hopped on, we were discussing the pillars of financial wellness. John, will you talk to us about what that means, what those are? Yeah, I think there's certain things that you want to be able to do. Uh, You certainly want to be able to manage the money which might be budgeting. Uh, You want to certainly control your debt, which is very important for all of us, really. Like I said, saving and investing for the future, which is, for many people, is a, a hard one to accomplish. Finally, you probably want some protection for your financial well-being, and typically that falls into the insurance category of health and life insurance. I know I struggle with budgeting. You know, I definitely would say that I have an aversion to it. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. I think people just hearing the word budget, all of us kind of 
It's just overwhelm. Up. Yeah, Ugh. you just think, oh, I just need to cut back. I need to cut back. And I'm like, well, I'm on year probably 28 of needing to cut back. <laughs> <laughs> Budgeting is really just a blueprint or an outline. And most people actually inadvertently do a budgeting plan by way of paycheck to paycheck. They might receive their paycheck and let's say $500. And so then in their mind, how do I want to spend that? And they start spending it. Some people have better control of how they're going to spend it than others, but they are really right at that point in time doing a simplified budgeting. What you really probably want to do is something just a little bit more formal than that. And you're absolutely right. Most people have a real aversion to budgeting, and even in the business world. Um, I quite often have sat in meetings with other owners in the, that are in the same business as me, and they also have a pretty strong aversion to making a formal budget. But I think on an individual basis, I've used this technique. Uh, I don't use it so much anymore because I don't think I'm in a position where I need to, but Certainly back when I was much younger, I used this technique as a very simplified methodology for budgeting. Uh, I'd simply take a single sheet of paper and on one side of it, I'd make a list of all the things that I needed to spend money on in a given month. I'd try to prioritize that list. I'd try to put the things that I absolutely must spend money on at the top of the list. And so I might start with my rent and mortgage and put in the utilities and and so on and go down the list and wind up with, you know, buying a, a new book to read at the bookstore as maybe a final item. And then on the other, next to that list, I would put the dollar amount that I would want to spend on each of those items during the month. That would be my expense side or outgoing funds. And then on the flip side of the piece of paper, I would identify all my sources of funds, which could be my check from my job. Maybe I'm going to receive a gift and I'll let, put that on the backside. And those are my sources of funds. Now I'll add the sources of funds column and see how much money I've got coming in for the month. And then on the other side, I'll add up how I'm planning to spend those funds during the month. And I'll add that up. Do I have more funds than I have expenses? And if it turns out my expenses are running higher than my income, then I need to make some adjustments. And typically, I'd make the adjustments, obviously, on this spending side, because that's the easiest for me to control. But I could make adjustments on the income side if I could, I could look at it and say, well, you know what? I could pick up a part-time job and pick up another eight hours of work someplace so I could increase my income to meet my spending desires, or I can decrease my spending to meet my current income. You could do a sheet of paper like that for every single month, or you could use a month as a standard that you want to kind of keep track of on a month-to-month -month basis. And as you spend the money, try to spend money based on, on those needs that you've identified. Now, one of the things I would do on the spending side is I would always incorporate some type of savings on that mandatory spending. Many people 
do not consider savings as as an important expenditure, but I think in the long term, it is a very important expenditure. So that's how I would do budgeting. It doesn't have to be complicated, and I think that's part of the problem. All of us think things are more complicated than they are or have to be more complicated than they are. Mm -hmm. We recently did an episode on intuitive eating, and Coach Ann was saying it's the rules it's the rules around food that make us have trouble with sticking to anything. And I think budgets are the same way. It's like we're set, we're putting ourselves in these boxes and we're stressing ourselves out when those boxes aren't perfect. But budgeting really can open up the possibilities and opportunities to let go of that stress because now you have a clear idea of where your money is going. So just like What we talk about in almost every podcast, becoming aware and making mindful choices around your money is going to help your stress and your wellness in the long term versus just spending money and hoping it all turns out okay. (laughs) I get it. It's stressful to sit down and look at the nitty gritty facts, but isn't it more stressful to ignore it and continually outspend what you're earning. And then you're faced every year, every day with that overwhelming sense that you're always in debt. As a person, you're just in debt. You're spending more than what you have. The simple plan I just laid out, anybody Mm -hmm. could do in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, I think most people know where they're spending money for the most part. I think where they get caught is they as they're spending money without a budget, that they're spending money on things that are, I would call frivolous. And they're only frivolous if you don't have the money (laughs) to pay for them. Uh, Things that used to be frivolous for me are no longer frivolous because I can afford them. But if I can't afford them, then they become, some of those things are frivolous. So, you know, going out and having, you know, uh, a couple beers after work uh, may not be a big deal unless you realize that spending that 12 or $15, you know, once or twice a week adds up to $100 and you're coming up $150 short at the end of the month, you know, so now those beers are probably a frivolous expenditure. Mm -hmm. But if you're coming up with plenty of money in the bank, then they're not a frivolous expenditure. I know we're going to hop into savings. I am curious what you have to say about debt fitting into the budget. Should people focus all of their efforts on paying off debt before they start saving? This is seems to be a hot topic in the financial world. Do we immediately start investing in our future or do I pay off this high interest debt that I have or low interest debt? I still have student loans. One of the things about debt is that if you can invest money at a rate that's higher than what you're paying for money, then it doesn't make sense to pay off the debt and for not invest. So what I'm saying, let's say you have a student loan that is locked in at 5%, but you have a small retirement account, IRA account, and it's in an index stock fund and the average return on that index stock fund over its lifetime is going to be eight, nine, 10 or 12%. You're earning more in that investment than it's costing you to have those borrowed funds. So it makes more sense to put the money into the investment as much as you can and pay down the debt at a slower rate. 
Now, if you have a debt at 18%. Credit card debt. Yeah, that would be a great example. Credit card debt at 18%. And your investment funds are only earning you at this point in time, 10 or 12%, then that credit card debt really needs to be eliminated as quickly as possible. Every dollar you're putting into your investment that could have gone towards that debt, you're actually losing money on the the earnings versus the cost of the debt. So you want to pay down that high interest rate debt first. And I think a lot of times people don't prioritize their debts just like they need to prioritize their spending Again, take a sheet of paper, what debts do I have and what interest rate are are they charging me on each of these debts, then realize that the high interest debts are the ones you want to pay off first and look for unique ways to do that. You don't always have to pay the debt off. You might be able to refinance the debt. So you might take an 18% interest rate debt and borrow money uh, directly from another source. For example, very often credit card companies have promotional interest rates on new credit cards. Maybe one of the things you can do is get a new credit card with a 0% interest rate for 18 months, transfer that high interest rate debt over to the 0% rate. However, if you do that, make it a real priority to pay off as much as you can of that transferred debt, because every dollar is going towards principal. And that's the key is to reduce the principal so that the future, when interest is starts to be paid again on that debt, you're not paying so much. You've eliminated a great deal of it. And that's the key. Get the principal down as quickly as possible. I'm an advocate for even in, when you're very tight budget, to at least save or invest some small amount of funds, especially when you're younger, because over a long period of time, the compounding of interest will pay a big dividend. So that $5 that maybe you put away now that seems so small with compounded interest can be a large amount of money relative to that current $5 20 or 30 years down the road. And let me make a point here. There is a difference between what I'm calling savings and what I'm calling investment. Savings I look at as a short-term venture. All of us should have some money set aside for those emergency situations. Now, I've had you go ahead and make a budget, but that budget is based on what you expect to spend on a regular basis. But we all know that life throws us curveballs. All of a sudden, you have a tire blowout and you've got to replace the tires on your car. And you've got a five or $600 expenditure that you did not anticipate. Savings, to me, is a short-term venture. You want some set-aside money to cover those tires or a medical emergency or some other event in your life that might crop up that you weren't expecting. Financial planners will tell you they think you should have months worth of savings. In other words, if you lost your job, you had no income, you should be able to survive for three months, six months, or whatever on your savings. That's a great idea. Honestly, I think most people have a very difficult time ever being able to achieve that. When you stop and think 
even if you're not making a lot of money, how much money you are making and to try to set aside that amount of money for a six, six months period uh, of living is probably not doable for most people. However, I think having a thousand or two thousand dollars in the bank, a separate savings account to cover those emergency expenditures, I think that is doable. And you just simply do it again by the same way you you save for anything else. Start putting a small amount of money in a in a separate account, savings account at the bank or wherever, and always know that if there's an emergency pops up. That's where you go to get the money. And after you take the money out of that, you continue to put money back into it. So you build it back up to your one or two or $3,000 limit. Now that's for short term. Long term is investing. And investing is not playing the stock market. It's not buying and selling stocks. Investing is really a long term venture. I'm going to invest, I'm going to put money into my IRA or my 401k or whatever other long-term savings investment you have. And I'm going to know that it's going to fluctuate in value up and down throughout the lifetime of that investment. The good news is that traditionally and historically, those long-term investments pay back on an average between 8 and 12% return on that investment. So if you put it away, small but sure, over time, you will eventually accumulate a large amount of money. And you use that those funds only for truly major important things in the future. Example might be you plan to buy a home and you need a large down payment. That would be the reason you would take money out of an investment account. Or you plan to retire at a relatively early age. That's why you would put money in that investment account and start taking it out, say, at 55 instead of 65 or whatever. But investment is definitely a major savings for the future. A good example of compounding. I love this story. I just read it recently. Ben Franklin was always an advocate for savings. And any of us who remember our school stories about him, a penny saved is a penny earned. He was challenged during his lifetime to commit to to that philosophy. Upon his death, his estate provided $2,000 to the city of Boston and $2,000 to the city of Philadelphia to be placed in an investment account not to be paid out any sooner than 100 years after his death, the first payout, and the second payout over 200 years after his death. Both of those cities, after 100 years and again at 200 years, received several million dollars from that $2,000 investment that Ben Franklin left them. So the compounding of funds is just unbelievable. And the longer they set, the more valuable they become. Now, none of us are going to live 200 years, but hopefully we get 20 or 30 years of compounding before we have to start using that money. Mm-hmm. Do you have a recommendation on where to invest or what to do with that five, 10, 15, 20 dollars? Yeah. Warren Buffett, who is one of the wealthiest men in the world, uh, a few years ago, told investment managers that what they did 
was really not all that valuable. Of course, they didn't believe him. So he made a bet with them. He said, I'll bet you that I can put in, believe the sum of money was either $10,000 or $100,000 into an index fund. And you guys take exactly the same amount of money and you manage it the way you always manage accounts. And at the end of 10 years, let's see who has the most money. They actually gave up after approximately five or six years. Warren Buffett won hands down because the index fund had a constant growth over time and it was far better than the managed funds. So the point here is that there are a lot of companies out there, Fidelity, Vanguard, other companies that sell what are known as index funds. They can be indexed to the whole stock market. They can be indexed to growth companies, but they're indexed to some large amount. So what they're doing is they're spreading the risk of that investment over a large group of stocks, which most of us as individuals cannot do. And we're taking advantage of the long-term average return on those investments. And those index funds typically will pay back a very constant return on your investment over a long period of time. So I am a strong advocate of putting the money in an index fund. You can buy an index fund in your IRA. You can buy index funds. If you happen to be lucky enough to have a 401k with your employer, if you're young, I recommend putting buying an index fund that is growth-oriented. As you get older, I recommend starting to move the money out of the growth stocks and more into the income secures investments such as government bonds or some other investment that sets a floor for income if you want to start using that income. One of the problems with establishing an IRA is that many of these companies do require at least a minimum amount to open the account. And sometimes that can be a stumbling block for people to come up with one or $2,000, whatever the minimum is. There is one way around it. I, I did this for my company a few years ago. There are what are known as SEP IRAs. And what it is, the employer can have each of the employees open an account with a brokerage firm with one of these IRAs, the brokerage firm will open those accounts with no money in the account. And then the employer will make some type of payment to the account. The employee can add more money to the account. But the good news there is these accounts can be opened with no dollars invested by anybody because the brokerage firm wants the business of that that business owner to invest in those accounts. So you may not be able to tell your employer to do that, but if you have an employer that's willing to do that, uh, it really costs the employer virtually nothing other than sometimes some time and effort. So it's a very good plan for small businesses and people who work for small business to find a way to invest small sums of money over a long period of time. You mentioned the high interest credit cards, and if it's possible, move it into a low or 0% APR credit card for the 18 months or whatever. I personally am a big fan of credit cards and not debit cards. I feel safer with credit cards. I've had debit cards, the number stolen and used, and it's not as protected. 
I also love credit cards because I can make them work for me. I'm earning money or rewards or miles or whatever from that. And that does take some organization. That means sitting down once a month and writing out, what is this credit card offering for me? How should I be using these credit cards in the best way? But I am curious because I know a lot of financial planners are sort of anti-credit card if you're already in debt? Like, what is your opinion on credit card usage throughout the life cycle? Well, I think I'm an advocate for credit card over a debit card. However, I, I do see one of the downsides of a credit card is clearly the ability to run up your debt. Because if you're not paying the credit card off every month, you then are increasing your debt at a high interest rate. And that's not what we were trying to accomplish here. We want to reduce our debt if possible. Now, if you use the credit card with the thinking of a debit card, and by that, I mean a debit card is the money is in the bank and I'm just spending it rather than writing a check or having the cash in my hand, I'm just taking it out of my account and moving it from my account to the vendor's account. If you think of a credit card in the same respect, so that you don't spend any more, more on the credit card than you would have spent had you had the debit card because you're limited to the amount of money you have available, then I would always be an advocate for the credit card because one thing, and I've told Carrie this over the years, credit cards, Going way back into sometime in the 1960s or 70s, Congress actually required the banks to put certain protections in place for credit cards that are not in place for debit cards. Example, a credit card actually has, I believe, a $50 loss limit. If something happens and somebody starts inappropriately using your credit card and you call the bank, by law, the bank can only charge you up to $50 and they have to cover the rest on, of the loss on the credit card. On a debit card, that's that's up to the bank. They have full control of what they want to protect you from and they can change those rules at any time. Another thing I've seen on a debit card is some banks, at least in the past, they there may not be any banks doing this now, but some banks in the past would always take and run your expenses on your debit card, the amount coming out of your account first, and then they would add your deposits in second. So even though you made a deposit of $1,000 and you went out and spent $1,000 and thinking you have spent no more than what you had in your debit card, if the bank is pulling that $1,000 out of your account, before they give you credit for the $1,000 you deposited, you could literally be overdrafting. I had uh, a lady that I used to do the payroll for a nonprofit and the lady deposited her paycheck in her bank and she was using her debit card to make small purchases. And it turned out that there was a problem with that deposit and the bank charged her an overdraft fee on every single one of those small purchases. So she might be making a $1 purchase and she was paying, I think at the time, $10 for each overdraft on that small purchase. So in the end, it was a huge sum of money simply because of the way the bank transacted 
the deposit versus the spending out of the account. So I'm a real advocate for credit cards. I think they give you a much higher protection. Just simply avoid borrowing money. Just use them the same way you would use a debit card. Use it to charge and then pay it off at the end of the month. That's the ideal. Gosh, it's almost like banks don't really care about us. Yeah, sometimes you might get that impression. (laughs) That's the vibe, yeah. One more thing on debt, I should add. Debt is in and of itself not a bad thing. Debt's money borrowed for things that add value to your life are a good debt. Example of that, student debt. Yes, I wish we didn't have to have our students borrow the kinds of money that they borrow to get an advanced education. However, at least that borrowing goes to something that hopefully will pay off in the future and get them something better in their lives than they would have gotten if they hadn't gotten that education. And when I refer to education, I mean more than college, because you can go to a technical school and need to borrow money. Borrowing money to purchase, say, a business or to purchase a home, those are the good kinds of borrowing that should pay off dividends to you in the future. And so they're invaluable or can be invaluable to your betterment. However, borrowing money to buy a new dress to go to the college prom or high school prom is probably not a good investment. You know, it's probably not a good reason to borrow money or to take that winter vacation for two weeks down in Mexico that the only way you can do it is borrow the money and then pay it back at 18% interest. That's probably not a good reason to borrow money. Once that money is used for that purpose, it's gone. It'll never pay a dividend back to you. No dresses for college prom. There you go. (laughs) I'm like, dang, now what am I going to (laughs) do? Not go? (laughs) Would you mind summarizing all of the points that you made about budgeting and debt so far? Yeah, I I think I'll make an attempt at that. First of all, I, I think the one thing I would like everybody to try to think of is keeping things as simple as possible. Sometimes we have a tendency to overcomplicate. So in the budgeting area, like I said, you can make that so simple. You summarize your expenses, you summarize your sources of income, and you compare those, and then you use that simple piece of paper on a monthly basis as your guide. If you can stick to that guide, then you can meet that plan to include paying down your debts, paying your current bills, and putting aside some funds for the future. And as far as debt is concerned, again, you want to eliminate those highest interest rate debts first. Get them out of the way, bring them down. Whatever you do, put more money into paying down those high interest rate debts rather than the low interest rate debts. And when you get those high interest rate debts out of the way, put more money into your investment and savings because they will typically earn you more in the long run than the cost of your low interest debt. So then you make savings and investment your priority, not necessarily paying down the rest of your debts. Well, thank you, Dad, John for being with us and sharing your expertise. And listeners, 
Just to let you know, we are going to be continuing this conversation next week, leading into everybody's favorite day of the year, Tax Day. If you are with us and believing being human is weird, then like, subscribe, share, all of those things that the kids are doing, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at beinghumanisweird. That's where we're going to be sharing resources, inspiration, and news about our podcast. And we would love to hear from you, so slide right into our DMs with questions, comments, and what you'd like to hear more of. And thank you so much for listening, weirdos.